stand-up comic as if you could start. <laughs> Is that right? Is that all right? Is that, okay? is that okay? Yep, brilliant, thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm, my name is Steve, and I'm Steve Smith, and I'm part of the Fellowship of the King, who we meet just up the road sometimes with the Etlow uh, Church there. And uh, I've, well, my wife, Jane, she works at the preschool here, and uh, I've got many sort of friends here, quite a few people who I teach their children piano <laughs> as well. And uh, so, yes, I, I know, you know, I, and I really like sort of everything I hear about Cairns Road. I love the fact you have so many people coming in during the week, and your, you know, your passion to be a church without walls and and all these things. And I think you know this church is a real blessing to the city. So thank you for all that you are. And uh, my prayer is that what I'm sharing this morning would, in some way, kind of speak into and perhaps help that in some small way. Um, so I'll just pray and uh, ask the Lord to speak to us all, and then I'll start. So, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that there are so many wonderful things that you want to teach us, that you want us to grasp hold of, so that we can more effectively love you and serve you in every part of our daily lives. Lord, we thank you that you come to us. Thank you that you help us. Thank you that you strengthen and encourage us day by day. Thank you that you are shaping us as we make ourselves available to you and open before you. And please help us to be open now. Shape us by your word, we pray. Inspire us by your Holy Spirit. And we, we just pray that each of us would hear what we need to hear today. I don't know what that is. I would hear what I need to hear. Each of us would, as your spirit ministers to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when Pete asked me to, to speak, I thought I'd uh, speak. It's a talk, actually, I, I did some years ago, having read a, a very good book by Eugene Peterson called Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work. And if you like what I'm... Is that familiar? All right, it's a good book, yeah. So, um, and so what I'm sharing today, I've, I've, I've actually, it's, I don't know where my copy is. I lent it to someone years ago and it's gone. But uh, this is a talk that I did sort of, I suppose, inspired by, based around some of the ideas in that, which are very helpful, centered around the book of Ruth, uh, this little tiny book sort of tucked away in between Judges and uh, 1 Samuel. And I thought I'd just begin with a very brief overview of the story of Ruth for anyone who may not be familiar with it. Uh, the book of Ruth is set um, in the time of Judges, which is when Israel had come into the promised land, uh, but there the weren't yet any kings in the land. Uh, and it centers around uh, a, a woman, a lady called Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech. Uh, there's a time of famine in Bethlehem where they're living, and they go out, uh, therefore they emigrate to Moab, uh, outside of Israel, to find food, and with their two sons. And while they're there, Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry Moabites women. Uh, sadly, the two sons also die, so Naomi is basically left alone, this is ten years on, uh, with her two daughters-in-law. She hears that uh, you know, there's food now in Bethlehem, so she plans to go back, and she tells her daughters-in-law, you know, you go back, go back to your people, you know, you, you've been great, but it's time for you to go and make your own lives. And one of them does, but the other, Ruth, doesn't. Uh, she insists on staying with Ruth, 
uh, and she speaks these very stirring words, uh, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, your people will be my people, and your God, my God, and where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Very moving and stirring words. Anyway, so Naomi agrees to, for Ruth to return with her to Bethlehem. And when they get there, everyone's very happy. Says, oh, it's Naomi. Hello, Naomi. But Naomi actually refuses to celebrate her homecoming. And she says, she says don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty God has dealt very bitterly with me. So she refuses to celebrate. She just sort of goes home and is just obviously a very, very distressed state. And it's the time of the barley harvest, and uh, Ruth decides that she's going to go and glean in the fields, which is to pick up the extra bits that kind of get left behind, which is part of the stipulations under the covenant that poor people are allowed to do that. So she's going and gleaning, and she happens to get to the field of a man called Boaz, who is a relative of Elimelech and Naomi. And Boaz has heard about Naomi's plight, and he's heard about Ruth's kindness. And so he's very kind to Ruth. And he sort of makes sure that his, his, his workers don't harm her. He tells her to sort of stay in his fields where she'll be safe. And he gives her sort of food and drink and gives her extra bits of gleanings as well. So she goes home sort of staggering under a sort of huge weight of, of barley. And uh, she tells Naomi what's happened. And Naomi's really pleased. And Boaz is a relative. And so Ruth continues to go gleaning. And Boaz continues to be kind. And then Naomi has a plan. When it comes to the time of the feast, at the sort of full gathering of the barley harvest... Uh, they have a big party, and they'll have lots to eat and drink. And, and, and Naomi tells Ruth, well, when Boaz is asleep in the field uh, under his blanket, you go and just uncover the very end of his blanket by his feet and sort of lie yourself down there, and he'll tell you what to do next. So she does that, and Boaz gets a bit of a shock. <laughs> Suddenly find this young woman at the end of his blanket. Uh, but anyway, they have a chat. And basically, Boaz is very happy to marry Ruth. This is what he wants to do. He wants to help Naomi. He has, he, he's moved by sort of pity and compassion on Ruth and Naomi. So he's going to marry Ruth, uh, which will help sort Naomi's situation out. But marrying Ruth isn't quite that simple because it's tied up with the selling of some of Elimelech's land. And Boaz isn't first in line to do that. So there's somebody else who's first in the queue. So Boaz the next day goes into the market square, finds this man and says, look, do you want to buy Elimelech and Naomi's bit of land? And he says, yes, I'd like to do that. And Boaz says, well, if you do that, you'll have to marry Ruth as well. And he says, oh, well, that would make it a bit tricky with my own inheritance situation, so I won't. So Boaz and Ruth marry, and they have a son, and uh, everybody's very happy, and Naomi celebrates. And the women, interestingly, the women of the neighborhood give him a name, and they call him Obed, and they say, a son has been born to Naomi. So everything's worked out really well for Naomi in the end, and his name is Obed, and he happens to be the father of Jesse, who happens to be the father of King David. So that's a very skeletal outline of the story of the book of Ruth. Probably most people are familiar with that if it was a bit skeletal and rushed. I'm sorry, but anyway. So this story is set in the time of the judges. It's quite a sort of chaotic time. Uh, before there were any kings, everyone, as it says in the Bible, people were doing what was right in their own eyes. It was kind of, kind of up and down time in many ways. But the book of Ruth is read uh, by Jewish communities at Pentecost, uh, which we associate with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost. 
But in Jewish tradition, it's associated with the, the barley harvest, aha, which of course is mentioned in the book of Ruth. Uh, and it's also tied in with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai uh, through Exodus 19 and 20 and beyond. And the, that's an interesting tie-in. So why should the book of Ruth be seen as anything to do with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? Well, the message of Sinai, when God comes and gives the law, gives the Ten Commandments and expands it to the people, is that from now on, everything that Israelites do matters. Everything you do matters. You know, they're coming out of Egypt, okay? Well, there was a situation there. Life was a certain way. They come out of that. Into what? What is their redeemed life? Now they've been brought out of Egypt, what is their life going to look like? And God at Sinai gives them structure and gives them direction for their lives. And there are two sort of realities that, if you like, the law that is given at Sinai kind of connects. One reality is that God's plan involves you, me, or in Sinai, the Israelites. Because God says, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God has brought each of us as it were, out of the Egypt of sin and death. So God's active plan involves you and your life. And the other side of it is that what you do matters to God. So God says, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. So everything that you do in life matters to God. So it's kind of God's plan and us cooperating with that, working together. And in saying this, God is conferring value and worth on our lives because we are valuable and worthwhile enough to be, as human beings, brought out of Egypt. And not just on us, but on what we do as well, is given value by what God says at Sinai. And what it does also is it means that our lives are transformed from being, if you like, perhaps a random series of events, one thing after another, into something where there is actually the possibility of kind of story and history. Our lives become, if you like, a narrative of things that are connected and significant and have their place in a wider story. So all, this, you know, all the sort of re- little regulations under the covenant that God gave, which to us, as we read through them, seem so kind of burdensome and picky and, you know, are not a burden to be borne, are not something to drag the Israelites down. But on the contrary, what they serve as, they serve as a reminder and as evidence of the significance of every detail of your life. Everything you do matters. I can still remember now as a teenager watching some telly program and hearing a Jew speak about the food laws, you know, and the kosher laws are all kind of, you know, very sort of seem to us maybe quite sort of bizarre and picky or whatever. But he said, actually, they're really good because what they remind you is that you are not an animal. You know, so you're not just, oh, here's some, you know, actually, you are, there's a tremendous dignity. What it does is it confers dignity and importance and significance on what you eat and how you eat. So I think, I I find that that's a very helpful angle on on the sort of the covenant stipulations. And it's interesting that Jesus says that what the law is about is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And everything written in the law and the prophets is just a kind of unpacking of that. And it seems to me under the new covenant, that remains true for us. So everything that we do in our lives, although we're not governed by the sort of little regulations of the the Old Testament law, it's still true that everything matters. Every part of our lives 
has significance and matters to God. And in the book of Ruth, we have an example of the application of this kind of theologically conceived history and story that becomes possible to some people who are right out of the mainstream. I mean, even Boaz, although locally he's, he's kind of a big cheese, he's not really, he's not some, he doesn't own sort of, you know, sort of acres and acres. And, I mean, you know, he's quite small fish, really. And people like Naomi and Ruth are really very insignificant, people who could be easily overlooked. And one of the things that Eugene Peterson says and I'm, saying, I'm quoting him as saying it because he may be wrong, I can't quite get my head around this, but he says that as far as he knows, the book of Ruth is the oldest story in the history of the world, by which he means that, you know, you've got kind of things about the deeds of kings and generals and important people doing major things, you've got that. And you've also got kind of sweet little folk tales for amusement around the campfire, you know, which may illustrate the sort of, you know, sort of how silly sort of poor people are or how sweet they are or this or that or the other, but not really taking anything very seriously. But what's significant here is that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and what they do is really being taken seriously. And we're being invited, we're being invited to pay attention to it and to give it the weight that it really does have in the sight of God. It may not matter much to other people, but to God it matters tremendously. It's a bit like Dutch painters in the 17th century who start painting sort of milkmaids at work. You know, it's not just sort of kings and queens and Louis XIV and all this sort of stuff. You know, actually, a milkmaid at work, there's as much dignity and worth and value in that as there is in any sort of royal painting. That's one of the things that was rediscovered then as people began to rediscover uh, the scriptures coming out of the Reformation. And we know that God is not big on kings and important people, really. I mean, you know, he's in, in, in 1 Samuel 8, uh, God is very reluctant to, you know, for the people to have a king at all because it's where is God's glory revealed? Where are his purposes worked out? Well, in other nations round about, it would be through what the king does. It would be through generals winning lots of battles or kings having amazing building projects or that sort of thing. But not with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, how is he glorified? How are his purposes worked out? Well, it's in and through the ordinary lives. Sorry? Thank you. <laughs> it's in and through the ordinary lives of his people and the ordinary life together of his people. That's what it's about. And so the people in the story, you know, they're not stereotypes. They're not kind of ciphers, nor are they, nor are they under any kind of sort of slavish obligation to say certain things or to do certain things in order to fit in. They're given a lot of space to allow their story to unfold. There's no sense of sort of moralism. There's no sense of anybody being told off. When Naomi comes back and she complains, Naomi says, oh, you shouldn't say that. You know, she's given the space. That is her honest response at that time. She's given the space to have it. It's not moralistic. The narrator isn't moralistic, nor are we when we come to the story. It's not condescending. I mean, these are quite poor people, particularly Ruth and Naomi. But there's no sense of kind of looking down your nose at them. They are real people who are treated as equals, who are treated seriously. There's no sense of embarrassment. 
you know, if, if things are a bit awkward, if things, ooh, you know, this doesn't, ooh, you know, things that we'd like to maybe airbrush out or sweep under the carpet. There's no sense of that. Everything is there, just as it is. There's no insistence on things having to go in a certain direction. And it's just like the disciples, isn't it? You've got the disciples, you know, and their underlying commitment is to follow Jesus. But in that context, there's lots of bumbling about. There's lots of getting things wrong, saying stupid things. You know, that's fine, because actually that's how it is. That's how we are too. And it's really good that the Bible encourages us by presenting kind of warts and all presentations, because it's only when we're honest and open that God can actually use us and work with us. If all we present to God and one another is some sort of slavish, stereotypical front, what's the point of that, and what can God do with that? And so we think a little bit about how the characters get into the story and I'm not going to comment further other than just say this is how they get in to the story. Why, how does this story kind of happen? Well, first of all, it happens because Naomi complains. <laughs> you know, uh, she complains. She's bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because I'm feeling very, very bitter. God has dealt her a bad hand. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She doesn't mince her words. But in the story, she is taken seriously. She's taken seriously by Ruth, who sticks with her. She's taken seriously by Boaz, who helps her. And she's taken seriously by God, who works through Ruth and through Boaz to help her. It's interesting that, uh, you know, Boaz's prayer uh, for Ruth is, may a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then later on, Boaz is the one who gives the sort of full return to Ruth and Naomi. And it's under Boaz's wing, it's the same word as the sort of the, the, his, his skirt, that, uh, that, that Ruth comes to take refuge. So in other words, Boaz almost, he answers his own prayer, or he's the agent for the answering of his prayer. Uh, so anyway, so, so Naomi gets in by complaining. Ruth gets in by being very clear about her direction. It would be very easy for her just to go back to her relatives, but she doesn't. She makes a definite decision. She kind of steps out. She leaves everything behind in order to throw her lot in with Naomi and go to this completely different people group, the Israelites, and uh, sort of stick with, her, with Naomi. And Boaz, he gets into the story by taking on more than his responsibilities demand. He doesn't have to do anything like what he does. He, I mean, he's not even first in line as the redeemer. He, he could just, you know, and there would be people behind him in the queue as well. He could pass on it all, but he doesn't. He takes the situation seriously. He engages with it out of compassion, and uh, so there's this sort of fantastic outcome that comes from all this. So what we get is, is this, there's this tremendous sense within the story of people having a space and being able to find their voice within it, even when at the time it doesn't sound very good. Still, they're allowed to be themselves, they're allowed to be authentic as they kind of seek to, to wrestle their way through to a good outcome. There's no sense of it being imposed on or forced. And I really like the way that that is the feel that God's people together has. You know, church, what is church about? Well, church is really about kind of adults together, all helping one another, all listening to one another's story, all being willing to share 
our stories. And it's not about sort of some people being experts and everyone else being sort of infantilized, just sort of sitting there kind of receiving. We're all adults in it together. And it's God who's in charge, and it's God who works through us and through each of us as we seek to live honestly and openly before him. You know, Jesus is very keen, particularly, say, in Matthew 23, that we don't sort of seek after sort of titles and, you know, big roles and all this sort of thing. But our focus, if we want to do well in the kingdom of God, it's how can I serve? How can I help? How can I be a channel of God's blessing with people's individual journeys in terms of the corporate journey that we're going on together? You know, Paul, very, very willing to talk about his weaknesses, very much an emphasis on the body, as we heard about earlier. I mean, the great thing about the body is that, you know, the ear is fantastic at being the ear, but a finger, you know, the ear has no understanding of the finger, but they need each other. They need to work together and, and to kind of give each other the space that they require in order to do their job properly. And... Uh, yeah, just the, just the idea, finally, that, that, you know, what church is, church mustn't end up, and I know Ken Jones, but, you know, I mean, it's so easy, caricaturally, for church to end up, have, can have a feel a bit of a sort of a casting room, where there are certain roles that are important, and, you know, do you fit one of these roles, then you matter, and if you don't, you don't. Well, of course it's not like that. Or some sort of, you know, Procrustean bed. Do you remember the Procrustes, the, the, in, in the Greek myth, who, uh, Greek legends, who uh, used to entertain his travellers, and then at night they'd have this bed to sleep on, and uh, he was a slightly strange man, because if they were too short, he would stretch them with his rack to make them fit. Or if they were too long, he would lock bits off until they, you know, so everyone would end up, ended up fitting his bed. <laughs> they were severely distressed, if not dead. And, you know, and, 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 and I think what, what must be avoided is church having that feeling, I need to be a certain way, I need to fit, I need to be like this, I need to be like that, otherwise I have no place here. And I think the great encouragement of the Book of Ruth is that actually there's a place for everybody, as well as that it's, it's not so much in the form, you know, as it, as it says on the, on the sheet, that you've got really the message, the under, you know, the, the big encouraging underlying message, that actually all of our lives are important before God in all their little detail. Everything is significant. Everything matters to God. And so it should matter to us as well, because it has value, because God says so. And uh, we need to seek together to have our stories work towards that good outcome that we can have as we live together under God's good hand. So, should we just pray? Is that that right? Thank you. So, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this wonderful story and for these very real people in it. Lord, even though it was set 3,000 years ago, we can still have a real sense of what they were like. We, we, We feel we know them really very well, and we share so much of the emotion that's going on as we read the story and we hear it. And Lord, we thank you that you're a real God who deals with real people and that you are concerned with every part of our lives. Lord, thank you that you don't want us just to kind of act out some role, but Lord, you want to bring us into fullness of life. Lord, where our whole life is a celebration of your love and your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you that you are leading us and drawing us to to, to, to be living lives where we display the image of your Son in all its fullness. Lord, thank you that you are shaping us and changing us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for one another. Thank you that we're able to help and encourage one another in that. And we just pray that as, as as church, Lord, we would be people who encourage 
honesty and openness and this sense of moving forward together under you, however painful or difficult that may be. But thank you that everybody has such value and worth in your sight. Thank you that everything we do matters. And help it, please help, please make it so that it matters to us as much as it matters to you, that in everything we do, we give you glory and praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.